Several months ago, the main drainage line from our house backed up. It's an unpleasant experience for any homeowner. One of the worst, really. This is not one of those goods that Joe just talked about that we're gonna trace back up into God. As I thought about giving a message on the pleasure of God in creation and human culture, I figured that the 30 yards or so of pipe that removes my family's waste from our home, at least when it's working properly, is as clear an intersection between the two as any. The root of our problem, as it turns out, was a root, a tree root, likely many of them. Creation was making war on that vital little stretch of culture buried under our front yard. So we called someone with extensive experience with such unpleasantries. We'll call him Larry. Larry is everything you might expect from a man who spent the last 30 plus years dealing with every homeowner's nightmares. It seems like the particular shirt and jeans that he's wearing might be his favorite shirt and jeans. He talks in a low, grovelly mumble, manifestly friendly, and also manifestly hard to understand. He clears drains with an extraordinarily heavy machine that he's built himself using spare parts. It looked like something out of a Ghostbusters movie, and it weighed about as much as my Honda Odyssey. I know that because he asked me to help him carry it down our stairs. As I helped Larry carry his minivan down our front <laughs> stairs, I asked him where he lived. He told me, but he also mentioned that he had some farmland outside of town and hoped to retire and move out there. He'd spent the last summer renovating the house on the property. He was so excited about it, in fact, that he sidelined my clog and ran back to the truck to get some pictures. As he shuffled through these printed out emails, low res images, he stopped at the poultry barn. A big smile, ah. That's the poultry barn. He talked as a man might about his grandchildren. Oh, you have chickens? No, 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 pheasants. I raise pheasants. Every year, he went on to explain, Larry buys 300 pheasant eggs and incubates them until they hatch. Once they hatch, he cares for the birds for six to eight weeks with as much watermelon as a proud granddad, granddad can afford. Oh, they love watermelon. That's a special treat on Sundays. They go crazy for watermelon. Larry goes on to tell me that on average, half, half of the 300 pheasants won't survive until that eight weeks. So what do you do with the rest of them? Do you sell them? No, no, I don't sell them. Just let them go. Oh, so do you hunt? No, no, I don't hunt. So why do you do it? Long pause. He looks like he's never had to answer that question before, like he's never really had to have a good reason to buy and feed and raise 300 pheasants every year. Unsure, he finally mumbled, 
I guess it's just my way of giving back. Then he smiled. Man, you should see him fight over that watermelon. <laughs> Goes on to tell me that even after he releases the half who do survive, the vast majority die in a matter of weeks or months. They'll either be eaten by predators or they'll starve to death because the farming machines today are so efficient that they don't leave enough behind. He guesses only 10% will survive a year. So if you're keeping a tally, of the 300 pheasants Larry bought and fed and raised this spring, he believes 15 might survive until spring. As I helped Larry load his machine back into his truck and watched him drive off down our street, what stuck with me wasn't his haphazard appearance or his grumbly voice or even how nice it was to have a functioning drain pipe again. No, what stuck with me was how happy those strange, hapless, short-lived birds made him. I was left with something of a haunting question. Does anything God has made make me feel like he feels about those birds? Of all the people in the world, lovers of God, worshipers of the creator, we ought to be the most captivated by what he's made, shouldn't we? And yet too often simple guys like Larry they see and feel more than we do, more than I do, anyway. And his fresh watermelon and his warm smile, they're just a faint whisper of how God feels about pheasants. The real question before us this morning is, does anything God has made make us feel like God feels about it all? That's where I wanna go and what I wanna try and awaken in our time together. So let's pray and ask God to help us see and feel what we should see and feel. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. God, help us to see what you see in creation. Make us better listeners to all that creation is saying to us in these minutes together. We don't want, like so many, to grow deaf and blind to what you're saying in the heavens, in mountains, in oceans, in our fields and lakes and parks, in each other. We want eyes and ears tuned to your glory in it all. We want to enjoy your creation like you do. So bring light now to your word and to this world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. O oh Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor 
and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays his beams, the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it shall never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon, which he planted in them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is filled with your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships, and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. 
who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Psalm 104. Do your prayers ever sound like that? I don't mean the length or the poetry or even the mountains or the rock badgers or the streams, but do you ever stop, slow down, and marvel at something God has made and bless him for it? Does creation still arrest your attention and lead you to worship? I say still because I have three three children under the age of seven. And you don't have to convince people under the age of seven to marvel at what God has made. Every rock is a precious rock. A rock worth keeping, protecting, and displaying. Another one came home from school this week. Every animal, bunnies, deer, raccoons, turtles, they all may as well be a unicorn. Every bug is an all-hands-on-deck crisis. Children's eyes are smaller than our eyes, but they're almost always wider, too, aren't they? They see things that we've forgotten how to see. Well, I want to see more of what they see, more of what God sees. And I think Psalm 104 is a great park to walk through. As we do, I want to stop briefly at four great views along the way. First, God creates. Second, God delights. Third, we delight. And finally, we create. God creates, God delights, we delight, and finally, we create. So first, God creates. It's interesting to compare Psalm 104 with the Psalms that come immediately before it and after it. All three Psalms set out to do essentially the same thing, at least at the highest level. They want to awaken Godward awe and joy and worship. Psalm 103, verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 104, you just heard, bless the Lord, same words, O my soul. Psalm 105, O give thanks to the Lord. Same goal in all three, but they pursue that awe and joy and worship in, in three noticeably different ways. Psalm 103 focuses on the glories of salvation. He forgives your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. Forget not all his benefits. He does not deal with us according to our sins, verse 10, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103 revels in the rescue, in the pardon, in the steadfast love of the Lord from everlasting to everlasting. David Mathis will wade into the wonders of the gospel again in our last session. Psalm 105 pursues that same soul awakening awe and joy and worship from a different angle. Again, same goal, verse three, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. But where's the focus this time? Verse five, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered, the choosing of Abraham, the land he gave to Jacob, the freeing of Joseph from prison, the sending of Moses, the humbling of Egypt. The psalmist wants our hearts to seek and rejoice in God, and so he does a history lesson. He relives moments when God's hand broke in to save and prosper his people. He traces God's providence, which is where Lewis will go after lunch. Psalm 104 pursues that same awe and joy and worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. But it sits beside yet another window. And of the three, maybe a more neglected window in our circles. When the psalmist sees a disconnect between what he believes about God and how he feels about God, when he wants to stir the coals of his love for God into flame, He doesn't rehearse God's mercy and forgiveness again. And he doesn't run back to the many times that God had rescued them as a people. No, this time he lets his mind wander over hills and through valleys. He climbs mountains and wades into oceans. Creation was his chosen weapon against temptation. Creation was his rallying point back to reality. I say creation with deep conviction and purpose because it is, as you know, all of it everywhere, conceived and performed by a real divine imagination. As T.M. Moore writes in Consider, Consider the Lilies, one of the central teachings of scripture is that the natural world is not at all natural. It is the creation of a supernatural God. What we routinely call nature is in fact creation. That means that nothing we encounter is purposeless or gloryless or simply natural. We may notice the purpose and glory more in the grander aspects of creation like oceans and lions and mountains, but scripture teaches us very clearly that even birds and lilies are saying something profound about God. Psalm 104, it wants us to see and feel this throughout. He stretched out the heavens. He stacked the mountains and carved out the values. He drew the shores of the oceans. He taught the moon where to stand in spring and winter. He cooks for the birds, the badgers, the goats, the lions. The psalmist is pointing in every direction, highlighting as much as he can bring to mind. Look at that, look at that, look at that and that and that and that. But really, he's saying again and again, look at him. He did that. He did that. Oh, and he did that too. 
Isn't he stunning? Isn't he terrifying? Isn't he lovely? O Lord, verse 24, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. This God-centeredness, the glory of this creator crescendos in verse 27. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. Listen to this. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you, when you, when you, when you, and never otherwise. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. They all, great and small, land and sea, they all sit and wait for him. They exist when and how and where he chooses. No creature is below him and no detail escapes him. Every mouth bows before his cosmic farmer's market. All things, Romans eleven thirty six, are truly from him, through him, and for him. Creation is preaching the meticulous attention, power, creativity, and generosity of God. So do you still hear it anymore? Do we regularly stop and look long enough to listen? Or are we slumped in the back rows, barely paying attention, slowly nodding off? And remember, the psalmist didn't have Netflix or National Geographic. He didn't have Google or YouTube. He couldn't plan a trip to the Pacific Ocean or the Rocky Mountains or even to Como Zoo here nearby. No, he could see as far as he could walk and then only through the stories of others. He had to make the most of whatever was outside his front door. So don't hear creation and first think some grand adventure somewhere far away or through a screen. No, think whatever's grown in your front yard the things you want to grow and the things you don't. Don't first think of rare and exotic animals. Think of the moles or squirrels that are ruining whatever you want to grow in your front yard. Yes, he mentions lions and leviathan, but he also mentions birds and grass and night skies. By all means, take advantage of all the ways that we can see more today. We do this in our family. But don't miss the ordinary, breathtaking glimpses in your own little corners of creation. The God we worship is a creative and creating God. We're literally surrounded by the works of his hands. Nothing anywhere is untouched by his wisdom, his creativity, his brush. Because he wants us to see and savor him, he not only speaks, but he creates, and he speaks through his creating. So first, God creates. Second stop now, God delights. 
As we keep walking through the park of Psalm 104, we see the hand of God again and again, building, intervening, producing, feeding, sustaining, creating. Everything there is, everything we see, everything we know, our God has made. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This isn't a conference, however, about the power and creativity and wisdom of God. No, we want to know what makes the happy God happy. Fortunately, in Psalm 104, we not only see the strong hands of God, but we also get a glimpse of his smile. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Not may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May we rejoice in his works. We're going to talk about that in a second. No, may he rejoice in his works. He's not just putting on a show that a few nature-loving people might enjoy. No, God loves high mountains and winding valleys. He loves full moons and brilliant sunsets like the one this morning. He loves badgers and storks and wild donkeys. The God of the universe genuinely enjoys the universe that he's made, the one that we get to live in every day. This shouldn't surprise us. In fact, it should be a familiar melody from the very first chapter in the Bible. Genesis 1, 3, and 4. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. We're so used to hearing that word and even those verses that we might pass right over it. But right there, in the very first verses of the Bible, is the first hint. No, the loud, repeated chorus, good, 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 good. That this world wasn't meant to be a a functional place to live and raise a family. No, God meant for the place that he made to be beautiful, awe-inspiring, worshipful. In a word, good. Night and day were not just needed, but good. Mountains and oceans were not just enormous, but good. The bushes, flowers, and trees were not just fertile and productive, but good. The birds and fish and beasts of the field were all unique, intentional, captivating in their own ways. They were good. In other words, God made a world that even God could admire. How strange and tragic then that our small, finite eyes so quickly grow dim with it all. God not only makes, he delights in what he makes. He admires his creation. He steps off stage, as it were, to take in and savor what he's done. The story he's conceived, the lighting that he's staged, the flooring that he's laid, the scenery that he's built, the characters that he's developed, the colors and textures that he's woven together, the melodies that he's written under it all. And why is it all so good in his eyes? It's because everywhere he looks, he sees something of himself, his glory. The pleasure of God in creation 
is the pleasure of God in God. Derek Kidner sees this in the very first verses of the psalm, covering himself with light, stretching out the heavens, laying his chambers on the waters, making the clouds his chariot. Kidner writes, the metaphor of his taking up its parts and powers as his robe, tent, palace, and chariot, it invites us to see the world as something he delights in, which is charged with his energy and alive with his presence. He delights in what he's made because it's charged with his energy and alive with his presence. He is creation's splendor and majesty. And in the midst of everything good, the light was good, the land was good, the lions were good, the honey was really good. In the midst of everything else, God outdid himself. He made creatures in his own image, man and woman, you and me. And only then did he say, very good. You can almost taste his pleasure in the words, very good. Why very good? Why especially delightful? We don't have time here to explore all the goodness of the image of God and mankind. That's probably for another conference. But one vital difference between humanity and everything else that he's made is that of all the wonders that he had conceived and created, only this creature could share in his pleasure over what he'd made. Only the man and woman had the capacity to experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Only to them could he one day say, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And only this creature among all the creatures on the earth would be a creating creature, taking what he had made and making something new. And those are our next two stops in the park. We delight and we create. So first, God creates. Second, God delights. Third now, we delight. At our third stop, we finally arrive where the psalm began. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. Notice the first words of the psalm are not cast into the heavens, no, they're directed inward at the heart. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Wake up. Stop nodding off before the splendor and majesty all around you. I mentioned earlier that in our circles, we do Psalm 103 reflection pretty well, rehearsing the glories of redemption. And we do Psalm 105 reflection pretty well, recounting the stories of what God has done in scripture and in history. How often though, when our heart, hearts grow cool or dull or distracted, do we think to immerse ourselves not in more books, but in trees and fields and birds and streams, in fall leaves like the ones outside, or maybe even in a little snow? How often have you thought 
of the outdoors as a means of grace. As I watch over and over again in scripture how creation deepens faith and quiets fears and instills confidence and inspires courage and awakens joy, I can't help but wonder if creation isn't one of the great prescriptions that we're missing in our modern and anxious age. So much of our technological lives today carry the illusion of control. Deciding what we eat, where we eat, when we eat. Deciding what we watch, when we watch, how we watch. Our phones tell us that we're in control. Our cars, most of the time, tell us that we're in control. Our heating and air conditioning tells us that we are in control. Creation disagrees. Creation dispels the myth of my sovereignty. Creation shouts, you're not in control, and this world isn't about you. That's a sermon that we need to hear and rehear and rehear, and I think especially today. You can't decide the weather. You can't grow grass in that little corner of your yard. You can't control the squirrels or the moles. You can't tame a thunderstorm. You can't survive the bitter cold. You can't outlive an oak tree, but God can and does and will. In the introduction to Pleasures of God, Pastor John says this about the gospel. Unless we begin with God in this way, when the gospel comes to us, we will inevitably put ourselves at the center of it. We will feel that our value, rather than God's value, is the driving force in the gospel. We will trace the gospel back to God's need for us instead of tracing it back to the sovereign grace that rescues sinners who need God. Souls centered on self are homes built on sand. If we subtly believe that we're in control, that our value is driving the gospel or driving history, that God in the end really needs us, it's no wonder we're so anxious. If we let it, creation can help displace that tyranny of self. It can help make God our inner sense of gravity again. Watch where this wild safari of Psalm 104 ends. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice not in mountains or moons or donkeys. No, for I rejoice in the Lord. Those who see the most in creation are never left with just creation. No, they're drawn into a higher, more intense love, a higher, more intense good, God himself. God is the greatest gift of creation, the greatest pleasure of creation. President Rigney writes along the same lines he was sharing this morning, created reality brings God's perfections home to us in ways that are visible, 
concrete and particular. They keep God's attributes and characteristics from being merely abstractions because it's impossible for us to love a list of qualities. Everything God has made is preaching with loudspeakers cranked high and embedded everywhere we turn, and yet we often have our heads down, scrolling on our phones. So put the phone down for a moment. Turn it off if you have to, and lift up your eyes. When the sun rises each morning, God means for that flaming ball of ferocity, a star the size of a hundred earths and heated to 10,000 degrees, he wants it to remind us that he is strong, massive, reliable, and radiating with joy. Psalm 19, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. When we see the stars scattered in a clear night sky, an estimated 100 billion in our galaxy alone, God wants us to see how detailed and personal he is. Psalm 147, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Why would he name the stars? It's not for their sake, they're stars. No, it's for ours. It's so that we would know that he knows and cares for each and every one of us. When clouds crawl across the sky over our heads, they're not meant to be these massive, miraculous afterthoughts or depressing inconveniences for that matter. No, they should draw our attention into heaven and then stretch our imaginations far beyond them into the faithfulness of God. Your steadfast love O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 36. When we make out a mountain in the distance or drive through them as my family did on vacation earlier this year, we're meant to see enormous shadows of the majesty of God. Glorious are you, Psalm 76, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. When we hear the rush of a river or stream, it can inspire us to drink more deeply from all that God is for us in Jesus. Psalm 36, again, from this morning. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. When we come across a rock too heavy to carry and big enough to stand on, its weight and strength reveal a deeper reality to us. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Even the deer peeking through the trees, some of you are hoping to see a deer or two next month, even the deer declares how deeply satisfying God is. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 42. And that's to say nothing of all we see and experience of God in the boom of thunder, Psalm 29. The ruthlessness of lions, Psalm 7. The fragility of sheep 
Psalm 78, the sweetness of honey, Psalm 19, the strength of horses, Psalm 20, even the defenselessness of snails, Psalm 58. The heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that fills them are declaring the glory of God to us. How much richer, sweeter, and more tangible might our theology be if we were willing to stop and look and delight more than we do. Before we move away from stop three, our delight in who God is and what he's made, the psalm ends in a strange but fitting place. Again, verse 34. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. We delight. Next verse. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. When I first read that, I thought, that's a strange way to respond to all that he's seen. Look at the heavens, look at the mountains, look at the lions. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Seems strange. It's not how many of us would think to pray after seeing so much of God in what he's made. It's not strange. The psalmist lets his mind wander over wonder, over wonder, until his heart is set on fire again for God. And then he opens his eyes and he realizes just how broken our world is. How far the creation has strayed from its creator. He feels again that the wondrous creation is enslaved to futility, in bondage to corruption. It's like 30 people dying in a hurricane over the last few days. And how many more homes and lives destroyed? The creation is magnificent as it is, but it's nowhere near what it could be, nowhere near what it was. Because of sin, we live in the ruins of paradise. And the awful, tragic disparity between what was and what is for us today, it exposes the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of my sin. Sin introduced all this disease and hostility and disaster and heartache and death. Sin vandalized the satisfying glory of God in creation. Enjoying what remains of the beauty of creation then should make us hate sin all the more, especially our own sin. And it should make us long for God to make it all new again. Verse 29 again, when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. That's because of sin. Next verse, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. 
Death doesn't get the last word here or here. The light will invade the darkness. God will make all these things new, including us, you, me. All who oppose him will be consumed. The wicked will be evicted. We're destined to live on a real earth like ours, with real bodies like ours, surrounded by wonders and blessings and experiences like ours, but without the weakness, mortality, and sin that plague all that we know and enjoy now. That world will be like ours, but glorious. We will be ourselves, but glorious. The psalmist knows how this sin-ruined world will end, and so he ends not with despair, but with hope. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. God creates, God delights, we delight, and now finally, we create. The pleasure of God in creation and human culture, that was my assignment, and when I say culture, I mean all the good that humans do and make. I have the cultural mandate in mind, Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We won't get to spend as much time here, but we don't have to travel far in our park to see what we need to see. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, verse 16. The high mountains are for the wild goats, verse 18. He made the moon to mark the seasons, verse 19. The sun knows its time for setting. Verse 21. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. Man goes out to his work and works a full day. Seems kind of anticlimactic, right? The trees climb into the heavens, the mountains shake with wildlife, the lions roar for their hunger, all to hear. The moon ushers in fall and winter and spring. The sun chooses when the sky goes from blue to red to purple to dark. And Larry heads over to Long Lake Drive to clear another drain. Or whatever ordinary work God has given you to do. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Very next verse, listen to this. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. Trees and mountains and lions and the work that man can do. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The ordinary work of man is one of the manifold works of God. No other creature can do what you can do. What you can do in eight or 10 or 12 hours with your mind and your hands and your gifts says as much or more about God as a sunset or a canyon or a thunderstorm. Just think for a minute about the room that we're sitting in. 
Go ahead and look around. Think about the work it took to make a room like this functional and beautiful. The skill it took to design a blueprint, to lay a foundation, to hang the lighting and run the electricity, to lay the flooring and the carpet, to install the heating and air conditioning, to build bathrooms, praise God, and run plumbing. Rock badgers couldn't do this. Elephants can't do this. This sanctuary is a marvel of human imagination, innovation, and sweat. And it's one of a hundred marvels within a walking distance of where I'm standing right now. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. Only God could conceive of a creature capable of doing the work you do. Every working human you meet, white collar or blue collar, paid or unpaid, student, employee, manager, or stay-at-home mother, every one of them is a living canvas covered in the creativity of God. Whether they believe in him or not, whether they see the glory in their work or not, that they can do what they can do, whatever they do, and however well they do it, it reminds us of just how much more God can do. We get one more small glimpse in Psalm 105 into the pleasure of God in human culture. I wonder if you noticed it. Verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Hear the culture piece. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine to gladden the heart of man, bread to strengthen man's heart. Grapes transform through crushing and waiting. Wheat transform through mixing and baking. Wine and bread. I wanted to end this section on culture here because tomorrow, for our church, or in the next couple of weeks, we'll each gather in our churches and we'll hold and enjoy these two, bread and wine, together, the Lord's Supper. It's not the point of verses 14 and 15, to be clear. Wine and bread, they were ordinary fare for Israel in those days. But they're not ordinary fare any longer. Not for us. Not on the other side of Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. And is there a more subtle and yet stunning marriage of God's pleasure in creation and culture than in the feast we eat over and over and over to remember all he is for us in Jesus? I wanted this to be a tangible, holdable, edible, regular reminder for you of what we've seen here. In Psalm 104, God delights in what he's made, like wheat and grapes and you. And God delights in what we make, like wine and bread. Jesus chose to serve bread, not wheat. And he chose to serve wine, not water. Both are products of human creativity and effort of culture. 
Both quietly dignify all that mankind uniquely of all the creatures can do and make. And then, Psalm 104, we taste even more meaning in the wine. Bread strengthens man's heart. Wine gladdens the heart of man. Peter Lightheart writes, Jesus did not give his disciples grapes, but the blood of the grape, which is the creation transformed by human creativity and labor. Like bread, wine assumes a degree of technological sophistication, as well as a measure of social and political formation. Wine, however, is a drink of celebration and not mere nutrition. If Jesus had wanted to depict man's relation to creation and to God in purely utilitarian terms, bread and water would have sufficed. This bridegroom, however, changes water to wine, and in doing so, clarifies man's purpose in the world. And what's that purpose? In both work and rest, to enjoy what God has made and done. Ultimately, to enjoy God himself. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Psalm 43, 4. Cup after cup, the wine reminds us that the Lord's Supper is not a eulogy, but a toast. It plays an old, familiar, beloved chorus. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore because of this cross and resurrection. We don't, however, need the bread and wine in Psalm 104 to get to the carpenter from Nazareth. We'd be just fine with birds and grass and badgers. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then verse 7, quoting Psalm 104 of all places. Of the angels, God says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed but you are the same and your years have no end. When the father looks out over the goodness of creation, at the center of it all, he sees his son. And he loves what he sees. All things were made through him, John 1.3, and without him was not anything made that was made. Steve DeWitt writes, until we see the beauty of Christ, we will never see the true beauty in anything else. That means that if we really want to hear what God is saying in the blues of bluebirds, in the waddle of penguins, in the raging of rivers, in stillness of lakes, in the opening of lilies and landslides along cliffs, in the building of buildings and the baking of bread, then we first and forever fix our eyes on Jesus. All the scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, are about him, Luke 24, 27. 
And all of creation is preaching in that same series. Who's the star of the Psalm 104 galaxy? Sun and moon, birds and lions, oceans and forests. It's the one who became flesh and dwelt and worked among us. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And yet, he's the beauty in every beauty. The paradise hiding in our fallen world. The creator born in the likeness of the creature. The sun dawning on the darkness all around us. The crucified, risen, reigning, creating and sustaining Jesus. And so, whenever we enjoy and use creation rightly, it will lead us back to him. Let me pray. God, open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. And then open our eyes to see wondrous things in your world. Don't let the endless stream of glory around us fall on blind eyes and deaf ears. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and noses to smell and tongues to taste the wonders of all that you've made. Make the glory unmistakable for us. Cause our souls to rise like the sun in worship. And in it all, help us to see and savor Jesus. For we pray in his great name. Amen.